The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. <laughs> Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Welcome to the Titan Size Podcast. I'm Luke Horsham, joined by one of the other two hosts of the Titan Size Podcast. Will Lomas is here with me. Matias is in Barcelona watching FC Barcelona. He's a big soccer fan. I guess technically it's football where he is. But yeah. uh, he is a across the pond, as they say, in Europe watching uh, soccer. So uh, it's just Will and I today. We're going to kind of wrap up our draft coverage today in preparation for next week's episode, which will drop on either Monday or Tuesday, where we will do what we did last year, where we go through the first round uh, and we sort of do a mock draft, but we don't do it in the sense that what we think will happen, we do what we would do if, if we were in each team's shoes. So that you have that to look forward to next week. We did it last year again. It was really popular. You guys all seem to kind of like that. So we'll be doing that again. We'll be recruiting someone to be our third member because Matias will still be on vacation when that happens. Uh, so as for today, we've got really three things we're going to do. First, we're going to talk about uh, the Titan schedule, which was released last evening at about 7 o'clock by the NFL. We're going to go through that, talk about you know what pops out. Uh, you know, Did they get a, a bad hand out? So we'll, we'll talk about all that stuff. Then we're going to talk about each of the Titans' big positions of needs and, and try to come up with a consensus over which one of those makes the most sense to attack in the first round. And then to close out, we're going to go through the six or seven top receivers in this draft and just kind of lay out which of them would be good fits for the Titans. So let's start with the schedule. Uh, Will, what kind of jumps out to you or jumped out to you when you first looked at the schedule last night? Well, my biggest concern, if you follow me on Twitter, was that I didn't want the Broncos in week one or week two because they've got something like a 51-3 and three record. It's it's not that, but it's something crazy. Yeah. Uh, Justice Mosquito tweeted out last night, and I talked about it on Twitter a couple of days ago. They're fantastic at home. They always seem to get back-to-back home games or at the very least open at home, and they always win their home openers. So whether that's the altitude or whatever, it doesn't matter if they're going to win three games all season or if they're going to go to the Super Bowl, they win that first game at home. So I didn't want to be that team this year, and the Titans aren't, which is great. Um, I guess the thing that I hate the most about the schedule is, you know, the odds of a team going 0-2 and, and making the playoffs are, you know, infinitesimal. Like, it's, it's super, like, it Houston very... Houston did it last year, but it was an yeah, anomaly. Yeah, Houston did it last year because of a lot of kind of weird situations. And then they also went on like a 10 game hot streak or something where they were like nine and one over that stretch. Oh yeah. That was crazy. Yeah. It very rarely happens. So, you know, you don't, you don't ever want to start out. Oh, and two and the Titans first two games are at the Browns and the Colts at home. We never beat the Colts. Hopefully that changes, but until it does, like I have a hard time believing it will. And we've got to go to the Browns, who finally have like more than one good player at a time. And the Titans have historically struggled against the Browns for whatever reason. I mean, Kevin Byard had three interceptions, and that's the only reason we won that overtime game with them the last time we played them. We lost to Johnny Manziel. We beat him. We beat him at home in in between those two, but it yeah. was one of those games 
games where was that we the Cody Kessler out. game? Maybe it, it was the game where we started out with a deep ball to. I think we started actually out with uh, Marcus Martin, and then it was like two deep balls. The one where Kendall Wright caught it and fell on the ball yeah. and like knocked the breath out of himself. And, and then like, they ran well, the exact same play with Matthews instead of Kendall Wright the next yeah, time. Yeah, and it all and that worked too. And then I think I think they were up by sixteen points or something, and then yeah. Cleveland came back and almost like tied it up. Yeah, because that, that was the Cody Kessler game because he threw for like 300 yards. Yeah, a, a, a brutal game, but I mean, very indicative of what the Titans seem to do every year where they play down to their competition instead of just, you know, absolutely throttling somebody. The only teams over the past, you know, two or three years that it feels like we've beaten handily are the Green Bay Packers and the New England Patriots. Yeah, so, yeah. So, you know, take that for what you will, but that that's something that's got to change going forward. Like it's great to look good against good teams, but it is terrible to look bad against bad teams. So that jumps out immediately. Also, they've got got to go after those two games. They've got to go to Jacksonville for Thursday night football, which again, just like the Broncos in their home openers, it does not matter who you are. If you have to travel for Thursday night football, the odds are against you. It's a short week. It's hard to do. You can install a full game plan, even if Jacksonville is every bit as bad as they were last year, which unless they draft a right right tackle, I have serious concerns that they'll be any better. But that's a story for a different time. But no matter what, if you've got to go on the road, especially early in the season to Jacksonville like that, I mean, that's that's not great. So really dependent on what they do against the Browns in the home opener and against the Colts, you know, hopefully this time coming out aggressive and not letting them build a 30-point lead before you actually start playing. Depending on those two games, the season could really swing one of two ways. So, you know, everybody talks about how hard the late game schedule is, and it is, but to me, the first three games are always the most concerning. Yeah, there's really two things about the schedule that stand out to me. Uh, First of all, Colts in Week 2, right? I mean... That's the game. We're gonna all week long. We're gonna be talking about how they never beat Andrew Luck, and it's what eleven in a row now for him, right? But the, and I know the team is gonna say, "Well, you know, I'm tired of answering those questions." Well, guess what? If you win, you don't have to answer them anymore, yeah. right? So if they want this narrative to die, then they need to put it to death. It's not just gonna die if they keep losing. Yeah, so, I mean, so I mean, I'm just ready for that to end so that no one has to ever talk about it anymore. But you know what? As long as the streak is going, whoops, as long as the streak is going, as someone that covers the team and that has to talk about the team, I'm going to keep talking about that. Yeah, I mean, you, you really want the, the – if the Titans are going to have a Thursday night game, you would love for it to be the Colts coming to Tennessee on a Thursday night because that would be the perfect situation where they could finally build some momentum early. Instead, you know, it just the draw goes against them and all that. But, I mean, that Colts game, it's going to be one of the biggest games of the year because even if they win against the Browns and go 1-1 one and one against the Colts, until they play them again in Week 13, it's just going to be, you know, oh, well, even if they go on an eight-game winning streak, they're just going to lose to the Colts again. And it'll happen no matter what happens in between week two and week 13, if they don't beat the Colts early, people are not going to expect them to even compete with them late. And, and then the, the second thing that pops out to me about this schedule is having to play Houston twice within three weeks and New Orleans. That's a brutal end of the season. Because even though two of those three games are at Nissan Stadium, Houston – is a tough team, right? We joke about how, you know, Watson's not as good as people think he is and that DeAndre Hopkins has pass interference all the time and, and Watts declining. But Houston's a good football team. Like, you don't win nine, ten straight games if you're not a good football team. And the Titans haven't won in Houston in the last seven years. And then, obviously, New Orleans is a, a juggernaut team. That's a pretty rough, you know, three-game stretch to end the season. So I'm glad you brought that up because I meant to bring it up. You know, everybody's concerned about that, and I completely get it. But if you want to play the Texans, if you've got to play the Texans, you want to play them late because Will Fuller will inevitably be hurt. 
it, he'll, he will pull his hamstring somewhere around week eight or nine, and you don't want to play the Texans with Hopkins and Fuller. If that offensive line doesn't get serious improvements, then you're going to get Deshaun Watson in the cold weather with uh, a bad offensive line after he just took the most sacks in the NFL last year. So that, I mean, as much as the Titans get flack for, you know, Mario to not being able to stay healthy and all that, there's a good chance that Deshaun Watson is going to have a really tough time this year after tearing his ACL two years ago and then getting sacked more times than anybody else and having, what was it, a partially collapsed lung or something? Yeah. Uh, He had serious injuries the past two years, and the, the Texans didn't do anything in free agency to help it. I don't know why they didn't go after an offensive tackle. It's probably because they're, you know, tied up all their cap and J.J. Watt and, you know, Jadavion Clowney on the franchise tag and all that kind of stuff. But if anything declines on that defense, which they lost, you know, Tyron Matthew and Jonathan Joseph, which were, I think they're probably their best two defensive backs and a bad group of defensive backs. And whether you want to believe it or not, the reports are that Jadavian Clowney might not give 100% next year because he didn't want to be franchise tagged and he's trying to get a long-term deal after this and he doesn't want to jeopardize his future, depending on if you believe the hearsay or not. So taking all that into account, if you want, if you got to play him, you want to play him late. Like, you don't want to play him when they're at full strength. You don't want to play him when J.J. Watt doesn't have a bunch of wear and tear. If you've got to play him in this kind of structure, you want to play him in 15 and 17. Now... The Saints, it doesn't matter when you play them. But as long Precisely. as you play Yeah, as long as you play them outside of New Orleans, you've got a significantly better chance. But if you've got to go to New Orleans, thank goodness they don't. But if exactly. they had to go to New Orleans, yeah, I would almost go ahead and like mark that in and sharpie that you're gonna lose that game. Just forfeit like, and take a take a rest week and we'll try again yeah, next take week. Picture by week and playing over the Texans like right in the middle. I mean, it, it's it's impossible to play there. So, you know, it's it is a bad schedule, but if the situation was okay, well they've got to play the Saints on the road, and then they've got to close uh, with the Texans at home after being on the road for two weeks. I mean, if you've got to play them, do it like that is is how I kind of look at it. But you know, it, it, it doesn't. It really doesn't matter when you play the Saints. Like even if you get lucky, it's still unlucky. Uh, before we move into talking about the draft, two things have happened live. See, see, it's not a live show, but we, we do record it live. And so two things have happened in the last 10 minutes that I've seen on Twitter. The first being Tom Coughlin calling out our dear friend Jalen Ramsey for not showing up to Jag's voluntary workouts. I can't <laughs> man, like every day. Nashville's that guy, own. Nashville's own. Every day that guy does something to like, I mean, there's not much more respect I could lose for him, that being Ramsey at this point, but goodness gracious, man. And that guy's going to be a free agent, right? Or, or Either after this year or next year. Uh, yeah, I think it's after next year he'll be a free agent. Mm, they might have to pick up his fifth-year option. God, what a I headache that guy is. I mean, if, if Marcus Peters can get traded for, you know, as insanely productive as he was, and as important he was as he was to the Kansas City defense being good, you know, if he can get traded for what was it, a second and a fourth, or a second and something like, yeah, Jalen Ramsey's going to get traded for a third, and people are going to lose their minds. But I mean, if the Jags do bad next year, which, like I said before, I think is the likely outcome, then he's going to you know kind of quit like he did halfway through the season last year and just do what he wants to do, and. You can get away with that once in an NFL locker room. You can't get away with it twice. Yeah. So somebody will have an issue with it, and it will, everything will become a lot more public. And, you know, Leonard Fournette, like, has had his offseason issues. I would much rather a player on the Titans get arrested for speeding tickets or whatever than to not show up, you know, essentially six months after you publicly quit on the team. And, and here's my thing, too. You know, you look at some stories – over the last several years in the NFL where a talented player's career has been either eliminated or, or cut short due to something. You know, Justin Blackman had a problem with substance abuse. Same with, uh, uh, yeah, who am I thinking of? Josh Gordon, right? Yep. Uh, J- Johnny Manziel had substance abuse issues and just generally had a bad attitude. Jalen Ramsey's just an idiot. 
<laughs> I mean, there's no, there's no addiction. There's no report of there being some sort of mental illness. And even if he does have a mental illness, which I certainly respect mental health, don't take this as not, but what mental illness is it that prevents you from showing up to voluntary workouts to work with your team? That's not mental illness. That's just stupidity. Yeah, I mean, it, it goes back to that whole... When draft analysts break down somebody and they call them an alpha, what they usually mean is they are like a dominant personality who a team has to revolve around, whether they want to or not, that quickly turns into a diva in the wrong situation. Like, look at Aaron Rodgers. You know, great player. Nobody is doubting that. But he, you know, he supposedly has an alpha mentality and all that stuff. And that's great when you're winning. But when you're not, it becomes, you know, all these other negative adjectives to describe somebody. And that's what Ramsey got. Like, I mean, Ramsey was... Very, you know, very talkative on the field at Florida State. He was, you know, everybody knew he was great and he knew he was great. And he is a very, very good corner. But when things aren't going his way, you know, there was that video of him crying or whatever after something in his first year. He got into a fight with A.J. Green, the nicest human being in the world. Exactly. Uh, I mean, that was that was his Cortland Finnegan moment. Where, but like AJ Green, like got behind him and like choked him out or whatever he did. <laughs> Which was I, I mean, so funny. That was crazy. Like AJ Green for a second almost killed a guy in front of tens of thousands of people. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, that was that was insane. But I mean, but it, and that that's almost like uh, when Mike Evans went and did and pushed over Marshawn Lattimore. Like I got okay. to I got to briefly talk to Mike Evans at training camp last year, and that dude is like the most docile human being on earth. Like, he's a lot yeah. like Corey Davis. Like, there's just, you know, he's just going to go about his business. And for that dude to just go cheap shot someone, like, man. Yeah, I mean, it, and th- there's just something about that. Like, something about, you know, and it, it almost always happens when you're a player at a singular position. And what I mean by that is, like, if you're a quarterback, there's, you know, you're by yourself commanding everybody else. If you're a corner you're sitting there by yourself on one side of the field, you know, and all you've got around you is the other team. So it always happens when these people are kind of on an island because, I mean, you've got to kind of control your space in both those situations. So you hear all these personality things, but it's a reminder that even if a guy is outstanding on the field, you know, looks great, does does everything right, you know, they've got an alpha personality, they kind of like – you know, enforce or force their impose there it is impose their will on other people. You know that's great, but you've got to be real careful about what happens in the locker room because you get situations like this. Like if you, if you bring historically, um, it, like dominant players have always played really well when they're doing good, and when the team is not doing well, they just kind of freelance and do whatever they want. Yeah, uh, I mean it, that's just the way it is, and a lot of it is because. I would assume that their opinion is, I know I'm great. Everybody's told me I'm great. If the team is bad, it's because everybody around me is not doing what they're supposed to, not because I can do anything better. And when you think like that, you don't maintain the course, which is a reason why you'll probably see John Robinson pass on some of these guys in the draft, and ultimately it'll make the team better, even though it won't feel great in the moment. Exactly. Uh, the other thing I wanted to hit on before we get into draft stuff is this morning, Jason LaCanfora. Have you seen this yet, Will? What is it? Oh, Jay- the, is it Fisher thing? Yeah, he reported that Jeff yeah. Fisher <laughs> was uh, going to coach uh, the Houston team in the XFL. About five minutes ago, Jeff Fisher quote tweeted that report and said it was false and that JLC needs to get better sources. Oh, no, I had not seen that. That um, is outstanding. Just, op- just is open Twitter. It's everywhere. I know. Well, I mean, a lot of the people in uh, the Nashville media love Jason Lockenfora. Like all in the, the national or head- Nashville. No, Nashville. Like like really? Nashville people love Lockenfora. Like they're always like, oh, you know, I know he reported that the Titans were going to be sold to Bon Jovi, but that was just a joke, and he didn't know any better. And I'm obviously kidding. People hate oh, J- yeah, Jason okay. Lockenfora. He is always wrong. Like, <laughs> it, and, and it's a joke. It's a joke on Twitter. Like, if you if you follow people in sports, I think the other day the joke was that he said that 
the Cardinals are 100% committed to taking Kyler Murray with the first overall pick, and all the Arizona beat writers and stuff like all came out and said, you know, I've never been less convinced that the, the Cardinals are going to do something. <laughs> so much, yeah. like, everybody, everybody roasts him. He is a, a, almost like an admittedly bad person. Like, people don't like him because he's not likable. Um, he, like, his Twitter is terrible. I, like, if you follow him, <laughs> you should almost instantly unfollow him because I, I get. I mean, it's it's all Orioles nonsense and stuff about baseball who nobody cares about. Well, I mean, sorry, some of y'all care about baseball. I know Luke, Luke actually does, you know, watch baseball and everything. That, that may be your cup of tea, but his football reporting is almost always wrong. It's very poorly sourced. And when it's correct, it's something that he's heard second. You know, it'll be like Benjamin Albright will break news and Jason Lockenfor will say, Three days later, I'm hearing that this is the conversation and this may be the case. I mean, he's just a bad follow. Like, but that's outstanding. I am glad Jeff Fisher, like, which I'm sure, you know, one of the guys at 104.5 contacted him and was like, look, you know, this is what's going on. Is this real? Because if not, I would love for you to tweet at him. And I'm sure they did. But I mean, good, good for everybody. This is a, you know, this is a day where everybody came together because, Lock and Fora is truly like one of the least likable people. I tell you what, I respect Colin Cowherd a hundred times more than I respect Lock and Fora. Okay, I'm a Cowherd fan, so like, yeah. of course I do. Colin Cowherd actually hopped in my mentions the other day. Did you see that? Uh, no, I don't think so. He tweeted something about Andrew Luck, who I love, and I I told him I, I told him that of all the quarterbacks I watched in person last year because I saw like. Brady and Rodgers the year before and Wentz. I'm like, it's always amazing to me how uh, how well Luck plays quarterback. And then Cowherd responded to me and like gave me all these Vegas stats. And he's like, see, Vegas loves him too. I'm like, oh, that was weird. Um, I, I Luke, I have never disliked you more than this moment. <laughs> like you to, you talking to Cowherd about an, how great Andrew Luck is <laughs> is like a not like a weird fever dream I'm having where I'm like. <laughs> parallel universe am i in that's on the on the same token i think that deshaun watson plays quarterback pretty hideously it was like uncomfortable watching him play yeah it he played he plays quarterback like he really wishes he could like be running backwards and throw as hard as he can because half the time he starts running backwards and it looks like he has a plan and then he hits that back foot and has to stop and plant and realizes the defenders don't have to stop before they hit him and he just gets nailed but I mean, oh, like, and we've got to move on to a different topic because that just leaves a bad taste in my mouth. You talking about Andrew Luck being so great at quarterback? <laughs> let's let's hop into uh, the NFL draft for the Titans. Look, we kind of know what the needs are, right? I would say edge, interior defensive line, offensive line, probably interior as well, uh, and then wide receiver. So let's go through each of those positions and talk about. Why or why not it would make sense to address them in the first round? Let's start with the one that I think would make the least sense, possibly, and that's interior defensive line. I just don't think that, this is my reasoning, I just don't think that at 19, you know, obviously if Quinn and Williams is there at 19, or if Ed Oliver's there at 19, you're all over that. But those guys realistically are probably gone. And so if you're sitting there at 19 and, and you have Jeffrey Simmons from Mississippi State and... um uh, Christian Wilkins from Clemson, I don't know that either of those guys will have enough of an impact on a team. They're good football players, don't get me wrong. I don't know that they will make enough of a discernible impact for the Titans to be worth that draft pick. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going through a list of the 19 best kind of fits for the Titans just in, in general, but it really is like a first-round thing. Um Simmons was my 19, and Wilkins was my 8, I think. They're both they're both solid players. Like I think they can help a team a lot, but not the Titans. And, and why, why I say that is because the defense is already very good. And if you're going to add a defensive tackle, in my opinion, in the first round, it needs to be somebody who is very disruptive. Exactly. Who can... Who, who is not a straight-line player and is not limited by body type to play one or two positions. You know, I want a guy that 
I can put him right over the center and he can scare the center. And I want a guy who I can bump all the way out to three technique and he can get up field and be a pass rusher. I want a guy who I can stunt from a two. Like I, I want a versatile guy because people have this idea in mind that first round picks are to bring in guys who will start. And that's not true. With a first-round pick, you're trying to find a guy who is special at his position. He doesn't exactly. have to exactly. I agree. He he doesn't have to be a top five guy. Like that's not what that's for. But with a Dory Jackson, you know, t- we we drafted Dory Tennessee drafted Dory Jackson at 18 over so, Tre'Davious Williams. Yeah, tra- yeah, Tre'Davious White, and then over White, White, my bad. Like it's a like guys that were con- you know thought to be probably better prospects in a vacuum, but that's because Adoree Jackson had something special that the other ones didn't, is Adoree was an elite athlete, and he was very productive. He, you know, he had the things that John Robinson likes. He had the right frame. He had the athleticism. He was a very good tackler. He was a special corner in the fact that he did everything that he wanted from a corner, and he also, on top of that, had elite upside. That's what you want in this kind of later round. You don't want a guy that you think is maxed out. And realistically, Christian Wilkins is kind of the barometer. Like, if you believe that Christian Wilkins is a true guy who can play one technique to three technique and get upfield and disrupt things. I don't think that. Yeah, which which Luke doesn't. I think I'm, I'm on the fence. I think he could be a very good player. Like, I think there's a chance that he could be that. But he's also not hes not a freak athlete necessarily. He's 315 pounds, I think he was at the Combine, which is heavy for a three technique. But he doesn't anchor well enough versus double teams to play one technique. So you've got to think, for Clemson, they're very aggressive. Uh, their defensive coordinator is maybe the best, and, and not, not in college football. He might be the best defensive coordinator in the sport at any level. He's, he is innovative and outstanding and does everything well. So when you think like that, you've got to almost think about these guys like you would Alabama players is they're almost at their max potential already. If you are expecting them to take a step forward at the next level or to do anything more than you're seeing, you're wrong. They don't have any room to develop. They've been well coached for years. They've got, you know, top flight, uh, facilities like that there's nothing that the nfl has that's going to be a special thing for them now you'll hear from guys like mike keith and dave mcginnis and stuff how being around football other professional football players and being outside of the you know academic driven ncaa where you can only practice for x amount of hours a week how that helps players and maybe that's true from a lifestyle perspective but looking back on guys in those top flight programs usually they come out worse than better. Like, they're usually going to trend down. So Christian Wilkins, I think, averaged five sacks a year over the last three years. If it wasn't five, it was four and a half. So very close to that. So if you think you can drop him into Tennessee and make him a five-sack-a-year player, great. That would be third, second or tied for third or something like that over the last five years. That would be very productive. We don't we don't have a lot of guys who can get five plus sacks, but realistically, you might not expect that. Like he doesn't put that all on paper, so he's the only guy who's kind of in that fringe where okay, if you think you've got everything else in place and all the other you know positions are you know running dry, or there's already been those early runs on them, maybe you think about that. But I mean, honestly, there's just not a guy at 19 unless you're going to move up but there's not a guy at 19 where you're like that guy's going to be there and he's going to be a difference maker and real quick on Simmons I've said this before but with Simmons if you take him in the first round you're setting yourself up for failure partially because he won't play next year people talk about it and maybe he's on the active roster for a little while but you're asking a guy to go from no off-season training to a nine-month injury to start in, you know, actually making physical contact in October, November, and you're expecting that guy to come in and make the leap immediately, that isn't going to happen. Second of all, ACL injuries take two years to recover from. That's just a proven fact for 95% of cases. So 
you're not going to get a good player this year, and you probably won't get a first-round value from him next year. So now you're in year three of his contract. Are you going to wait three years to add another impact defensive tackle? No. Like, if you do, you're essentially ignoring the position. So you either let a need linger for three years to hopefully fix it after that, or you just draft a different player. Yeah, I mean, I agree with pretty much everything you just said right there. I think you hit it on the nose. With the biggest thing being, as I said, you know, that discernible impact. You know, just because you're a good football player doesn't mean you're going to make a discernible impact. I mean, uh, like, trying to find a good example. Like, uh, like Wesley Woodyard. Good football player. Wouldn't take him in the first round, you know? Yeah, I mean... There's plenty of good football. Like, okay, so like, just going off the top of my head, Sharif Finch is a very good football player. Like, he he's got a chance to be, you know, a starting caliber, you know, edge player this year or next year. He's got all the tools for it. He's got the athleticism. He's got the size and everything. But nobody would take him in the first round because he's got injury issues. That was his biggest concern. It wasn't production or you know, lack of athleticism, it, people were scared that he was going to be injured, and that's why it pushed him so far down and then playing at a smaller conference. But that just shows you, you can find people who have question marks like Simmons is going to come in the league with that have those question marks way later in the draft. I mean, Jarrell yeah. Casey didn't have any question marks, and he, he was a third-round pick. And, and I'm not saying that you should imagine that third-round picks and undrafted free agents is, will be able to you know, start or be impact players at the next level. But with a first-round pick, I cannot emphasize enough how you need to take a guy who you are sure will be on the team in four years, and then you really want to sign to a second contract. And somewhere along the line, they will be a special player or at the very least a top 10 to 12 player at their position. Yeah. That, that should look for in the first. That kind of potential, like high floor, high ceiling kind of players, which sounds like they'd be that rare, but they're not. People are so set on taking chances on players like DK Metcalf, and we'll get on this later, but people who confuse in, uh, potential with questions, they think if you answer these questions, think about how good he could be. But what you need to think is, what indicators do I have that he will be successful? What questions do I have? And then you need to weigh them against each other. The biggest thing that happens in, in the NFL that gets people in trouble is coaches and GMs consistently think they are better at their jobs than the places they're bringing talent from. So you'll get guys who, who are extremely athletic, who didn't produce as well as they should have, or guys who were productive in a scheme and a coach and a GM will say, well, if he was that productive at Temple, imagine how great he'll be in the NFL. And they confuse these things and they, they just let obvious question marks get in the way of their evaluation. And I'll talk about Jalen Ferguson at some point, either this, either this podcast or the next one, but I have serious concerns about him and people are slowly letting him rise back. And it just, all this is to say that you don't want to take a guy with big question marks in the first round unless you are sold that that's the one issue he has and it's a fixable issue. If, if that's what you're doing, okay, but I still disagree with it. Um, last word on D-line before we move on. If I'm taking an interior defensive lineman in round one, I want their ceiling. Because I know they're not all going to be this, but I want their ceiling to be Geno Atkins, Aaron Donald, Jarrell Casey, and Dominican Sue. I just don't see that with either Simmons or Wilkins. Moving on now to uh, wide receiver, and we're going to get more in-depth in this in just a second, so let's just kind of go by this real quick. Does it make sense for the Titans to draft a receiver in the first round? Because here's, here's the thing that would make sense is they would kind of get their pick of the litter, and, and it would further this theme of let's help Mariota have the best year he can when we need to decide on his future. But it also wouldn't make sense because I don't know that you're going to get first-round value out of some of these guys. I mean, it's it's hard because the question if the question is, is there going to be a guy 
who you can draft in the first round at 19 who's going to make an impact for you at wide receiver? The answer is yes. There's plenty of players that would be upgrades of what the Titans have now at their third receiver spot who would make this offense better. The question for me is, is there better value at other positions or is there better value on day two at wide receiver than there is in the first round? And I think the answer might be yes to those two. So, you know, in a vacuum, if if I didn't see the board and who was left and you said, okay, they got player X and I, and I think that guy's got a first round grade, then, you know, that's a good pick. Like they need a wide receiver. If they get a good wide receiver, great for them. But if you say, well, they let Brian Burns fall to 22 or they let, you know, there was a run on interior offensive linemen before that. And they ended up having to take their 15th best interior offensive lineman in the third round. If there's an if there's a reason, let me say it like this: If there's a better value that I can see that they missed, it will upset me because I think there's depth in this draft. But if you hit a nightmare scenario and you end up with your favorite wide receiver, yeah, I mean that's that's going to be a solid pick. So yes, I guess it makes sense, but it's contingent on a lot of other things going wrong. Interior offensive line. I think we've kind of highlighted the guys who would make sense, Garrett Bradbury, Eric McCoy, Chris Lindstrom being kind of the main three. Uh, I think that aside from edge rusher, which we'll get to in a second, that would make the most sense for the Titans because uh, of how, you know, you don't move on from Quentin Spain and take the dead cap from Josh Klein to play Kevin Pomfield at right guard. You just don't do that. It, it would not literally would not make any sense. That's why I think there's a pretty high chance that that's the direction the Titans go. Yeah, you, you tweeted that out the other day, and that's that was a really good point. Like, it's one of the times when like I see like you or Matias say something, and it makes me stop and rethink my position because I, 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 we talked about this earlier off the podcast. But I kind of view the needs as cyclical. Like every day, I'll say, "Well, if the Titans had this, they'd win the division," and then the next day, I said, "Well, if they had this, they'd be just a better team in general." And then uh, the next day I'll say, yeah, but if their goal is to make Mariota better, then what helps them the most? So, like, you know, I- I'll change every day. But if if you look at it from that standpoint, to they invested heavily in Saffold. They cut Klein because they knew they were going to bring somebody else in that's better. If you look at it like that, it almost doesn't make sense to cut Klein if you could have just replaced him and used him as a backup. It's almost like they used that time and money to bring in other guys who could be good backups like Panfield and they already had Stinney and Levin, but like they wanted to set, you know, position or numbers seven through ten on the offensive line instead of look at those guys as potential starters and they're saving that starting spot for somebody to be drafted. Now, I will say this every time I have heard uh Jim White talk about uh, put like positions of need and all that. He always talks about offensive line with the caveat that they've promised Kevin Pamfield that he's going to be able to compete for the starting job. Like that has come up in every mailbag I've seen, in every interview I've heard him talk about. Yeah, so, but how much can you trust that? No, I mean I, that's that's true, but it's one of those things that I've heard it so many times that I don't know if. That's, you know, John Robinson trying to sell him on that idea and like to keep the smoke screen up. I I don't know what it is, but at the very least, we know that Panfield did a good job when he played, you know, in limited time last year. They brought him back. But he's not apparently. No, he's not. I'm with you. But, you know, at the same time. I think we all thought Klein shouldn't be a starter last year, and they let that slide. I think they've set themselves up to the point where almost whether they believe it or not, they've gotten the message out that Pam Feel and some combination of Corey Levin and Ben Jones, two of those guys could be capable starters on the interior offensive line. And I think they've set themselves up so that when the draft is over, let's say they fulfill my dream and they trade up to nine and only have to give up like a first and a second and like a, like a fourth round or something like that. And they get at Oliver that they can push that need to day three and get a guy like Nate Davis or somebody that they like as a developmental guy. And they can say, well, 
we have plenty of faith in Pantfield to start at right guard, and that faith gave us you know, the ability to move up when whether they believe it or not is a whole different question, but they want to set themselves up to have that line in their back pocket in case they do end up with great value at other positions. But yeah, I'm with you. When I saw you phrase it like that, it does not make sense for them to kind of say, we're done at offensive line after this, when you probably would have just you know stuck it out with Klein if you thought, well, we're going to retool this part and just wait if we're not going to draft somebody high. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I think it's probably the biggest quote-unquote position of need because it's probably it's the one place you don't have any experience really. So like yeah, like that that makes the most sense to draft, but John Robinson, you know, historically has not invested very highly in interior offensive line. I I don't know. I, I would love, you know, the idea of taking an interior offensive lineman. I'm still not convinced it's the best because I'm still kind of convinced the edge rusher would be the best. And we'll close out this segment with that. Look, they need a pass rusher. Because you don't know how many snaps you're going to get out of Cameron Wake, and you don't know what kind of production you're going to get out of Harold Landry or Sharif Finch. Look, Sharif Finch is a good football player, but let's not kid ourselves. He had a marginal role last season, and now all these people are acting like he's all of a sudden going to be a world beater. Like, you just don't know. Yeah, I mean, Finch Finch is still very much a question mark. We haven't seen him for a long period of time. You know, let, like, I, I don't... Uh, unfortunately, I don't know off the top of my head how many snaps that Finch played, but in his first four games, he did really well. Which the, those first four games happened to be, you know, twelve to sixteen, you know, in terms of weeks in the season. But last year, in the first four games, you know, Harold Landry came out and did really well, and he even had that big strip sack against uh, the Eagles. Yeah, that turned the and. Again, you know, fair play. Sheree Finch had a strip sack against the Cowboys and stripped it and recovered it, and it was a big turning point in that game too. So, you know, I guess I should say it both ways. But there was also a long period where Harold Landry was playing really well but wasn't showing up on the stat sheet. And that's good in your first year, but I think we're all expecting, you know, Landry to take a step forward and to be better this year. And you can assume that with Finch, but I think the the thing that, you know, I guess scare you the most is we still haven't seen either one of them do it consistently. So right now, if you're looking at, you know, what's the, what's the biggest question mark, I guess, is the edge position. Cause if Landry and Finch come out strong, even if you don't add another player, you're set. Cause you've got, you know, good depth of the position for the first time in forever. You've got a designated pass rusher that can, you know, come on the field and get you six to eight sacks a year. Like that, that's all great. But if Landry and Finch aren't very good, or if their injuries pop back up, then you're really going to wish you had invested a first-round pick in an edge player, because if not, you're going to be stuck with Kamale Correa and Cameron Wake playing 70 snaps a game, and that, that's not really where you want to be. So, you know, I think right guard is a position where they need to, you know, find a way to get a player who can play a 1,000 snaps, but if... You know, Landry or Finch, Landry and Finch both don't you know step up this year. Then that's essentially what twelve hundred something like that snaps that they're going to be missing out on. So you, you really want to make sure that, which is one of the most important positions in football, you want to make sure that the cupboards aren't bare in case something goes wrong. Can I say this about pass rushers before we move on? This idea that is is really kind of propelled by everyone, coaches, fans, just. You know, me, uh, neutral observers that we're not allowed to judge a pass rusher by how many sacks they have because that's misleading. We have to look at the pressures. We have to look at the this and the that. that that's baloney. And, and other words that I'm not going to say on this family-friendly broadcast. Like, like it's two things. One, it seems like a lot of players are not being asked, quote-unquote, to get sacked. We're not asking him to necessarily get sacks. What is he supposed to do, okay? And number two, if you're an edge rusher and you only have three sacks, I don't want to hear about how many, oh, they had this many quarterback hurries or this many takedowns, whatever that means. Like, I want to judge them on sacks. Just like I'm going to judge receivers on the receiving yards, not on, well, they were open for this many targets, but the quarterback didn't always hit them. It's asinine to look at it that way. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense. Until there's a better quantifiable way to say, you know, this guy got a pressure and it affected this guy in, you know, it, it made the quarterback throw an interception. Until there's a better way to quantify that, and to do it in a way where it's like everybody can see. Like if Mariota throws a ball to Corey Davis, that's a catch. That is one catch. You know, if and no matter how he catches it, it's still a catch. If Harold Landry takes two steps past the offensive tackle and the quarterback is already running to the right and he throws it and somebody arbitrarily calls it a hurry because they either weren't paying attention or they're trying to get through all the film and, you know, do this, that, and other. Exactly. Like that, that, it shouldn't necessarily hold weight. Now, I will say, quarterback hits should be how many times a guy took a quarterback from, from his feet to the ground. Because I think that does have a quantifiable effect. If there was if a guy... you don't get there when he still has the ball in his hand, what's the point? Well, I, I hear you. That's like, having Jarell, an, that's like having an almost touchdown stats. That, that's true. But Jarrell Casey had a quarterback hit on Andrew Luck that put him out for a year and a half. So, like, if in that vein, like... Quarterback hits do affect a quarterback. Like, you know, if there was a guy with 60 quarterback hits last year and he only had four sacks, I would 100% sign him because as, you know, ruthless and as mean, I guess, as it is to say, I want a guy who's going to hit Andrew Luck enough times to where his shoulder hurts and he's not as good as a quarterback as he was. I want a guy who's going to hit Deshaun Watson enough times where, you know, he he's going to have to take a train, not 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 really that, but like I, I want I want him to be hit so much that he's uncomfortable. And if you hurry a guy and he rolls to the right and has a sixty yard bomb for a touchdown, that guy's not going to feel uncomfortable. If you hit a guy and he throws an incompletion and you hit him and hit him and hit him, the quarterback will like look at what happened to Tom Brady last year when the Titans played him. You know I don't care about the hurries, but they were frequently taking him down. Whether it was a Rackpo or Morgan or Logan Ryan or Landry, they were putting bodies on him and putting him on the ground. And by midway through the fourth quarter, the game was you know out of hand, and he was doing that famous Tom Brady pose he does, where his legs were spread out and he was sitting on the ground, and he was just like had his head hung in shame, and they pulled him out. I mean, they pulled him out of a regular season game, and just said, okay, like we forfeit. I don't know how many times I've seen the Patriots do that in the last 10 or 15 years. Maybe never. I, I truly don't remember a time when it's happened. So, you know, to see it happen live, that kind of gives you a new respect for like, okay, if you can hit this quarterback enough times to where he just admits defeat, it will have a psychological impact on him, you know, short-term and long-term. And I would love to get that kind of edge. Having said all that, at the end of the day, the only thing that we know affects quarterbacks and affects offenses in general is sacks. I think I think the stat is historically, if you get a sack, it's on a, on a drive at all. It's something crazy, like 15 times less likely that that drive will go for a touchdown, um, partially because you lose a down and usually about six to eight yards when you get a sack, um, unless you scramble up in the pocket. So it's a loss of yards and a loss of downs. And then secondly, because there's a big chance for either a fumble or it changes the strategy that the offensive coordinator has or they go from you know a deep passing game to a screen game. Those have quantifiable effects. Exactly. So, yeah, the only thing that matters at the end, and I've said this before, the only thing that matters at the end of the day is for a defense is how many points you allow, which is obviously the most important thing, uh, how many turnovers you can create, and how many sacks you have. Those are those are the only three stats that matter. And, I mean, really the only stat that matters is points allowed. But just in terms of how explosive and how good your defense is, those other two stats really show you, you know, the kind of toll it takes on opposing quarterbacks. So, yeah, like I, I don't care if a guy has 50 quarterback hurries. I, I like hits a lot more than Luke does, but sacks is – the ultimate stat. I think guys get paid something like uh, somebody did a, uh, essentially a pro like a finance project yeah. on this and said, it's like $1.1 million per sack or something is the going rate for pass rushers after six sacks or something crazy like that. But it I mean, it makes sense. Like anytime you can affect the other team's passing game in a negative way, you should get paid for it. Uh, as we close out for our last segment, we're going to riff on some of these receivers that, might make sense for the Titans. And we're just going to kind of go down the list. Will, you've watched tape on 
all of the guys I'm about to ask you about. So let's just go down the list. Start with the guy who most people seem to think is going to be the first off the board, though there, there is a bit of debate. But I would tend to think Metcalf's going to be the first off the board whenever he goes. Uh, Metcalf, I know, is a guy that you think has a role in the NFL, but, again, let's be clear, he has a role. He is not a do-it-all freak like people seem to maybe think he is. Yeah, I mean, I don't profess to be a wide receiver guru or anything like that, but, I mean, I've watched a ton of drafts. I've done a ton of work on it. And so, like, when I was making my big board and setting everything up, I already had Metcalf tentatively ranked as, like, a second-round grade. And then he came out and had that freak, you know, combine. And that's great. But the rule is you don't count athleticism twice. So I looked at the combine. I saw kind of where he succeeded and where he failed. And that checked out with everything I'd seen. But with that in mind, I went back and watched him. And he's just kind of the same player I saw. He's my wide receiver five right now. Um, I think he's a really good deep threat. He's got a really nice frame. Uh, he, he's got pretty good hands, especially if you throw it in front of him. He seems to be able to reach out and catch passes in stride on those nine routes, um, as well as anybody does those fingertip catches. But other than that, like he's not a special player. Like, I, I mean, having like he, he's a he is a deep threat. That that is his role in the NFL. And if you're looking specifically at the Titans. Yeah, like that makes sense. Like that's what they need in their game. They really need somebody to kind of pull those safeties back and open up the run game more. But if you think that DK Metcalf is going to be anything more than a speed deep threat, it, there's one of two things. Either you haven't watched him or you think that the athletic testing he went through but that said that he was, you know, terrible side to side. And, you know, with lateral agility and the film that all the film of him where he doesn't really accelerate well at all in the first, you know, five, 10 yards, you think all of that should be thrown out and there's a reason for that. And so if you believe either one of those things that that's, or, you know, if, if either one of those things is the case, that's fine. Like, I don't, I guess I don't have an issue with that. But when you look at him objectively, he is a deep threat wide receiver who based on everything you've seen from him, cannot do anything else. He has limited production and injury red flags. So if you take him, you should take him on day two. You should not take him on day one unless you have one specific need you have for your offense and he fits that need. Moving on, uh, A.J. Brown is someone I like. Yeah, He's kind of a do-it-all guy. I just don't know that he'd be great with the Titans because I think he's a slot. He, he's that kind of that Michael Thomas, Adam Thielen, bigger slot guy. And I just don't know that the Titans need that. Would you agree? Yeah. So if the Titans would have spent a lot of money on, uh, let's say, uh, Tyrell Williams, the guy who went uh, from the Chargers, if they spent a lot of money on him and had committed to making him a boundary receiver – then A.J. Brown would have been like the number one target for the Titans. He's, he's a perfect fit for him. He's got you know the back-to-back 1,000-yard seasons, which they love. He started a bunch of games. He's very, very, very athletic. Um, but, yeah, he's a slot receiver for the most part, and that's what he did in college. He, he played some boundary receiver um, after D.K. Metcalf got hurt, and he does have experience there, and he was fine. Like, I mean, if – if he's your third wide receiver and you're one of your starting two wide receivers goes down, you can easily kick him outside. Or if you've got a guy that you like, you know, like a DK Metcalf or like a Taewon Taylor, like somebody who's got a very limited route tree, but who is explosive and can kind of do very specific things. You could bring him on the field and kick AJ Brown to the slot. But if you've already got a slot receiver, he's probably going to be redundant in your offense, or at the very least there's better fits in this draft. So I love A.J. Brown. He's my wide receiver, too. I, I'm very high on him. I think he's going to be very good in the NFL. It scares me to death that he might go to the Colts. But, you know, I, I think he's going to be very good. Every He checks every box you want. But for the Titans, it's, it's, it's a, you know, a round peg in a square hole. Like, it just it, – you can make it work, I guess, but it's just not going to be optimal. Let's kind of go quickly through some of these other guys. Uh, Debo Samuel – Kind of a do-it-all kind of guy. That's how I would describe him. Jack-of-all-trades, master of nothing. Yeah. I mean, another guy who I think, 
is probably going to start out in the slot. The one thing that's different about him is he's, he's a really good athlete, obviously. Um, but he's a special teams guy too. Uh, he, I think he was a gunner on special teams and I think he even recovered a fumble or two or caused a fumble or two, um, in the film I watched. And he also like blocks really well for a smaller guy. So, you know, he does that, but he's, I, I don't think he's anything like truly special. Uh, yeah, I would tend to agree with that. The guy you really like, if I believe, if I remember correctly, is Hakeem Butler. Is that correct? Yes. Before we get into him, I want to hit on Nikhil Harry, who is a puzzling guy for me. Because I read, you know, stiff athlete, kind of a possession guy. And then I read, could be used effectively as a kick returner. <laughs> help, sort, help me sort this out with him. So, you know, he's not necessarily really straight line fast. And he's not really sudden, I guess. But he has this weird way of kind of weaving and setting up blocks where he's got great yard after the catch potential. He's got good acceleration. I mean, I like him a lot. Like, I mean, I think he, I think he should be drafted in the top 40. Like, he's probably a guy that if he goes to, uh, let's say, Arizona or, you know, any, any of those teams that are drafting top 10, like, he's going to be a good asset for him. He would be great if the Jets could find a way to pick up a second-round pick in the top 10 if, because the rumors they want to trade down. Like, he'd be a great guy to just, like, throw the ball to and then just let him run. I mean, he's – and it's hard to explain in any other – it's kind of like Darius Jennings in that, like, you look at him and the way he plays and, like, his, you know, his athletic testing and stuff, and none of it really stands out as, like, truly elite. But – you watch him on the field, and you're like, "Yeah, that guy's a great screen. Like he he can do pretty much everything you want." Um, but I mean, at the same time, like he's not going to be a number one receiver for anybody. Talk about Harmon for me. Uh, Butler, not, Butler, Butler, excuse me, oh, okay. Butler. Because <laughs> okay. uh, I do not like Harmon. That's me too. Um, so Hakeem Butler is six five, almost six five and a half. He like, ran sub four five too, right? Yeah, he, yeah, uh, he ran. Uh, no, I think he ran like right at like, four, yeah, four four eight. Yeah, so yeah. that's right. Um, freakishly athletic, really explosive. Um, probably uh, the best on paper, the best deep threat in uh, this draft for sure, because he actually like can go up and high, high point the ball. People knock him for drops, but that's about it. And I think Evan Silva is the one who always says it. Uh, it's either Evan Silva or Josh Norris who always says, you know, you can look at a guy like that who, and look at his drops, but there's so many times he has to catch outside of his radius because of poorly thrown passes that it's not really his fault that he has a lot of those drops because, you know, for every drop he has, he makes an amazing catch. And what he can do after the catch as a six five guy who runs that fast and who has great balance is, I mean, he, he's truly a threat to score every single time he touches the ball and by the way he'll also knock you out as a blocker like i mean he's he's a 6'5 230 pound you know wide receiver so you can imagine if you paired him up with Corey davis who's you know Vrabel regards as the best blocker the, t- the titans have if you put him and davis on the field together you know not only would you be able to attack every part of the field effectively but if you gave the ball to derrick henry and had those guys crack down you know, they're going to cave their guys in and you're going to have Henry one-on-one with a 180-pound corner. So I think he's great. He's my wide receiver one. I think he's got – I think if you're looking for a guy who could be Julio Jones-esque in this draft, it's Hakeem Butler more than it is DK Metcalf. Do you think he will be available for the Titans in the second round? No, no. I I don't think – if the Titans trade down from 19 to the mid-20s, I don't think he's available for them there. I think there are too many teams that are going to like him and too many teams that are going to say, you know, the Steelers won't do it because they always draft guys, but it'll be somebody like the Ravens who are like, okay, I've got a quarterback who needs another option. What's the best player I can get? And, you know, they might look at those tight ends if one of them is still there. But, I mean, he's he's the best wide receiver in this draft. Like he's got the least amount of question marks. He's got the best physical skills. He had 1300 yards last year with, you know, bad quarterback play where he was constantly double teamed. 
Like he he he's going to be you know he's the safest wide receiver I would say in this draft, other than AJ Brown. Close us out with Kelvin Harmon, who you alluded to a second ago. You do not like. Yeah, you know I just I don't know where he's special. Uh, you know he's a boundary receiver. He's not explosive. Um, I think. Uh, Matias has the most positive reviews for him, so I'll kind of quote him. But I think he said that he's got some of that, you know, New Hopkins push off to his game and physicality. And maybe that wasn't Matias. Maybe I'm just thinking of somebody else. But I, I think he said that before. He's got this kind of like real physical, like he's going to win on the outside and he's going to win. You know, if you run, if you throw a 13 yard out, he's going to go and you know break as hard as he can, which is fine. And he's gonna like fight for it, and he won't let anybody get it. And he's gonna win on that side. Yeah, like that. That's fine. Um, like he also played against ACC defenses, which were notoriously not very good, um, in against bad corners most of the time. And he had a pretty solid supporting cast. We had Ryan Finley as his quarterback, so I think that's why he got a lot of you know a lot of yards. I don't from a market share perspective. I think he like was you know, below average. I don't think he did very well, but I think because he had 2000 yard receiver uh, receiving seasons that people like him more. I don't know. I just don't, I don't know what he is at the next level. Like, are you going to sell me on the fact that he's a less physical Antoine Bolden or Heinz Ward? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like that's fine. But I don't think that's where the first round pick, like if you're, if you're talking to me like in the third round, like as a trade up guy or like a trade down guy in the second round, I guess I can see it, but I mean, I think he's my like wide receiver seven, like they're, they're wide receiver six, maybe like he's just not very, I don't, I don't have a lot of positive reviews for him. One guy I forgot to bring up as we close out, we can kind of hit on this one quickly because we've talked about him in previous episodes is uh, Marquise Brown who, despite his size and despite the injury concerns, I'm a big fan of for two reasons. Number one, his production. And number two, I think he's a lot more than just a I'm really fast guy. I think he is pretty good with the nuances of the position. Oh, yeah. I mean, he he is a good route runner. He's explosive. He If he was two inches taller, he would be a top ten pick in this draft. I mean, the problem is he's 5'9", and, and we've talked about this before. He's 5'9", 165 pounds, 170 pounds so and wet like that puts him literally in the first percentile for size it would make him one of the smallest receivers ever to play you know in the nfl much less be on a team or you know or be taken in the first round or whatever so that's scary on top of that he's also got this liz frank injury which nobody seems to bring up as much as they should which is a big deal because you're thinking okay this guy wins primarily with quickness and explosiveness but he's got something in the arch of his foot where sometimes it just hurts like hell. And sometimes, you know, he won't be able to make a move. Remember when Antonio Gates got that? And he's only a mildly explosive player in his prime. But he had those, like, kind of pops in his break where he would kind of get himself loose and, or, or, you know, create separation that way. Like, and after he got that, he looked so much slower and was so much less effective. Now, that's a tight end compared to a wide receiver. But if you're telling me I'm going to have a guy who, as productive and as athletic as I think he is, he never tested publicly, so we don't know how fast he really is. You know, he played in the Big Ten, so as athletic as he looked, I mean, he could have run a 4-4-2. Like, I mean, I think he would have run low 4-3s, but what if he would have come out and run a 4-4-5? We don't know. Like, so we don't really have any solid numbers on how athletic he is which is hard to quantify. All we know is how small he is, which is easy to quantify, and that he's got a foot injury at that size already. So are you telling me at the next level that if somebody presses him off the line of scrimmage, like, I mean, let's say he goes against somebody like Aqib Tlaib, who's like 6'1", 6'2", yeah. like a big guy, and presses him, that he's going to be able to consistently get open. And may, maybe he can, but it's not something I've seen, and it's another one of those things where there's so many question marks that even though I think he is fantastic on film, like I think he is, like I said, I think if he was two inches taller, he would be, you know, top 10. 
everybody would love him and he would be a lock to go high. But, you know, you've got the size. Okay, mark him down. Okay, he's got an injury. Okay, mark him down. Okay, he never played a lot of press coverage. Okay, mark him down. It's And also, he's really productive in a pass-heavy offense with two Heisman-winning quarterbacks. So it's very hard to say what he's going to be at the next level, even though he looks great. So I love him. If the Titans took him out in the first round, I would be fine with it. But I, I think he would also be taking a big gamble. That's going to do it for this episode. Uh, again, next week, either Monday or Tuesday, we will be back to do our first-round mock draft. We're going to go through all 32 picks in the first round. We're going to alternate between Will and I and, and some mysterious third person who I'll, I'll figure out to join us. Uh, we'll alternate the picks, you know, put ourselves in the position of the teams and see what we would do. And uh, it was a fun exercise last season. We'll do it again. I believe uh, in, when we did it last year, I was the Titans, and I took Landry in round one. And I traded up, right? Yeah. Because yeah, how, how, how we do it is, when we're doing it live, is you can do a trade so long as the other two people agree that it's actually a reasonable trade. Like, I couldn't be like, I'm going to trade up to the first pick. You know, if it's reasonable, I, you can trade, though. You traded with yourself, if I believe. Yeah, because I, <laughs> I, I had the Seahawks at, I think, I think 19. Yeah, so, uh, which, which was ultimately, like, a really good – you know, they, they traded down and got Rashard Penny, so like it all made sense. But it, it is really funny that you traded with yourself and were just kind of yes. <laughs> went rogue and nailed it. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it was it was fun, and it kind of shows you. And I'm not trying to brag on us, but we've got a pretty good idea of what the Titans would do in a in those situations yeah. and players they would like. I think John Robinson is easy to predict when it comes to the draft. Yeah, I think every year he gets a little bit easier. The only problem this year is that there's no glaring need except for right guard. So it's like, is he going to reach for you know a right guard who maybe isn't the 19th best player? Or is he going to trade around and try to get a big chip player and then add somebody later? So, I mean, find out next week, I guess. But yeah. it, it's something you should definitely listen to because I promise we will have a bunch of insight <laughs> that probably nobody else will. Yeah, so we'll be, we'll see you guys next week. Thank you for listening to this episode. Uh, for Will and the ghost of Matthias, who is not here with us, I'm Luke. Right. We'll see everyone next time. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.